Good morning, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. Today is Sunday, November 9th, 2014. My name is Leah, and I'm your moderator. The share ID for Friday, November 7th, is 7016. That's 7016. This morning, A Vision for You presents Lessons 4OA from AA's History. Why study AA history? Why study, or for that matter, even discuss the history and roots of Alcoholics Anonymous? What difference would it make? How could it affect how we live and work our individual recovery? Who really cares? It has been said that whenever a civilization or society declines or perishes, there is always one condition present. They forgot where they came from. The study of the history of AA will show us what it was that worked and resulted in so many men and women who recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. Hopefully, studying AA's history will not only serve to strengthen our personal recovery in Overeaters Anonymous, but also begin to strengthen OA as a whole. Joining us this morning is Lori C. from Winnipeg, Canada. Lori is a devoted messenger in Overeaters Anonymous and has led hundreds of workshops on how to use the big book effectively. We appreciate your time today, Lori. Welcome to the line. I'm now unmuted, so I'm on now? Yes. Good morning. I I think the hundreds is a little exaggerated. I've done a number of them, though, but but thank you for the opportunity to to share. Um, Good morning, everyone. Uh, I'm Lori. I'm a compulsive overeater. I've uh, uh, been lucky enough to have been taught a... Uh, method of approach to the big book that has given me recovery for over 21 years. Um, uh, weight loss has has come, and more important has been the ability to be free from the bondage of food and not not to want the foods that used to beckon to me. Um, I, I really like the topic, and it was suggested by Leia, and, and I thought about it, and I thought, you know, this is really something that we can learn I spent a lot of time uh, studying the big book and talking about the big book, but there's more of AA history that has a lot to teach us. And as a matter of fact, I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about the big book's approach to the steps. I will talk a bit about it, but I'm going to talk more about what we can learn from the early days of AA history um, that will be, I hope, of some benefit uh, to OA. Uh, I, I, I thought I could come up with 12 points, but I haven't. So I only have, let's see, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9 points. I'm sure if I worked hard, I could come up with 12. I don't know how long this will take, uh, but I'll, I'll do my best to keep it relatively brief. Um, so the first lesson is the definition of the problem. And this is a really significant aspect of AA history. As a matter of fact, it is what created AA. Um, Until the problem was defined well and defined by Dr. William Silkworth, who 
uh, is was a, a neuro neurologist and psychologist who treated uh, Bill Wilson, the co-founder of AA. Until Dr. Silkworth described it, alcoholism was a mystery to almost everyone um, because no one could explain why after rational discussions about alcohol, alcoholics continued to drink. And uh, no one could explain why alcoholics couldn't stop once they started. And it was Dr. Silkworth who really broke the uh, code and described the problem of the alcoholic. And, and I, I think that it applies to the uh, compulsive eater, at least my experience certainly shows that it applies to me. Um, Dr. Silkworth was able to describe it in ways that grabbed the imagination of Bill Wilson and thus allowed his desperation that was created by this sense of the description of the problem uh, to, to the despair that he needed in order to grasp the hope that, the tw- that what came, became the 12 steps uh, gave him. Let me let me just go back. I mean, I've, I've talked a lot about this sense of what Dr. Silkworth has said in in other uh, discussions uh, on the vision for you and and in other uh, areas of uh, of what I've written and, and spoken about. Um, but it it is a really simple concept for reasons unknown. Addicts, alcoholics, Dr. Silkworth described, and addicts as has been sort of extrapolated for many other addictions have something wrong with their, abnormal with their body and something abnormal with their mind. The, things that, the thing that is abnormal about their body is that they can't stop once they've started. Whatever it is that they indulge in, their bodies react abnormally. Normal people do not react that way. Normal people know when they've had enough or their bodies know when they've had enough. Normal people can overindulge and then not want any more afterwards. But the addict, at certain times, and it, it often it usually gets worse as time goes on, experiences moments when he or she cannot stop once the indulging has started. And that is proven to me and to my satisfaction by the experience of, well, of me and of hundreds and maybe thousands of people I've spoken to in OA and the many, many people I've met in AA and NA and SA and all kinds of other uh, EA and and all kinds of other uh, addiction programs. Um, once they start, they can't stop. Oh, sure, there are times when they've been able to say, "I I, I won't, I I can stop." Uh, times when peer pressure has made it difficult for them to go on. But if they've experienced moments at which the the stuff is being ingested and their mind is saying, I've got to stop, I've got to stop, I've got to stop, and they can't stop. Um, you know, I, I've experienced that so many times uh, in the past where the hand is bringing food to my mouth and my mind is saying, just the next bite, that'll be it, just, just the next, the next, the next bite, and the hand keeps bringing the food to the mouth. This abnormality is, well, there are all kinds of uh, discussions and explanations of why it occurs, metabolism and fat cells and, uh, uh, you know, creation of uh, sugar and uh, feelings of euphoria and dopamine and serotonin and 
whatever. But it it really hasn't yet been clinically analyzed uh, to the point that anyone can say this is the exact problem. But it is the experience of all of us that we have that. Dr. Silkworth acquired that understanding by looking at the alcoholics he treated. He treated, what, it was 20,000 alcoholics in this time at the town's hospital in, in New York. And he kept trying to understand how they were different. And he came to the conclusion, it's in the, the doctor's, a doctor's opinion in, in the, uh, preface, the prefatory chapters to the big book, where he realized that they all the alcoholics he talked to had, had many different characteristics. They were very different kind of people. Some of them had mental instabilities. Some of them were what he called perfectly normal. Um, some of them were, were downright uh, mentally ill. Uh, but the only thing that he saw in common with them was that they could not stop once they started. And then he devoted himself to trying to persuade them not to start because clearly if you didn't start, you wouldn't have this abnormal craving that he, he called it the phenomenon of craving, the existence of craving. Um, if you didn't have that craving, then clearly you wouldn't continue on. And what he discovered was this other problem, that people who, whom he would call alcoholics couldn't stop from starting. They had something wrong with their mind. They kept finding excuses for going back to what they absolutely knew would hurt them which is something that normal people don't do either. Normal people, if they have abnormal parts of their bodies or bodies that don't function normally or, 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 or that don't function in ways that are uh, healthy to them, they stop the activity that creates the bad parts. People who are allergic to peanuts, people allergic to, uh, to shrimp, don't eat shrimp, don't eat peanuts. Why would they eat anything that hurts them? Um, People who are celiac don't eat gluten. Why would they do it? Um, you know, my, my, my daughter discovered after a long series of tests that she's allergic to, uh, I can't remember, I think it's fructose, not sucrose, not glucose, but just fructose, and that she's lactose intolerant. Um, she doesn't want to eat those things. She knows the pain that will be caused to her if she eats things that contain those ingredients. Any normal person would do that. But... Dr. Silkworth discovered that after explaining and, and going through the experience of these alcoholics and proving to them, to their own satisfaction, that they should not start, that they, should not have, they could not have one drop of alcohol before their body starts to develop these cravings, kept seeing these people come back after having been dried out, after having had time to make certain that the, that the body wasn't saying more, more, more. They were all dried out. Their bodies didn't need any more alcohol kept seeing them come back year after year because they couldn't stop from going back. And the reasons for that were all kinds of different reasons. It wasn't necessarily that they felt pressure or that they felt lonely or angry or tired um, or, that they, uh, you know, or that they were thirsty or hungry. It could have been the simplest thing. And Bill Wilson's experience in his, in his own history of um, knowing that he can't drink and being involved in a business venture where he, he knew that if he took so much as one drink, he had signed a contract, that he would be out of this real opportunity to get out of the uh, debt that he and his wife Lois were in, uh, yielded really to 
uh, well, uh, liquor comes around, a jug of uh, whiskey comes around. He says, no, I'm not drinking. Comes around again, I'm not drinking. Comes around a third time, and the guy says, uh, you know, this this is from, I don't know, Tennessee, uh, sour mash. Uh, uh, it's good stuff. Okay, I'll have some. Well, what's the reasoning behind there? Where's the moment of forethought or, or rational thought? None whatsoever. And and this is true for me. In, in my days of compulsive eating, I in I gave myself permission for reasons that were absolutely absurd. Sure, there were times when I, I gave myself permission because of all the bad things that were going on in my life. Frankly, because of the good things that were going on in my life. I would celebrate with food as well as commiserate with food. Uh, but I, I, would, I would have excuses that were absolutely ridiculous, like it's whole grain, or it's natural, uh, or it's organic, or they made it for me, or people are looking at me, how can I say no? Um, or um, I've been exercising uh, for the last two minutes, so clearly I, I deserve it. Or I've been really good for the last hour. I didn't eat that cupcake at, uh, at, at supper time, so I can now have the cheesecake for breakfast, uh, you know, for, uh, yeah, for breakfast. Um, these stupid reasons are as good in my mind as the, more, as the deeper reasons. And Dr. Silkworth was able to isolate this as a mental obsession, a mental abnormality, an obsession, an idea that takes control of the mind regardless of any other ideas. Uh, the big book describes it as not being able to remember the humiliation and pain of even a week ago. And this mental obsession was something that Dr. Silkworth realized he could do nothing about. And it created what was called the double whammy. Once you start, you can't stop, and you cannot stop from starting again. On your own, you are hopeless, powerless. This is the great discovery that Dr. Silkworth made. It wasn't a happy one when he disclosed it to Bill um, and, and to Bill's wife, Lois. His, his solution was to lock Bill up because if Bill wasn't locked up, Bill would decline into alcoholic insanity or die uh, because Dr. Silkworth couldn't cure Bill. He couldn't help Bill. Once he isolated the problem, he had no solution. So that's the first important message. What does OA say about our problem? Well, on pages 2 and 3 of our OA 12 and 12, the, the, uh, the OA 12 and 12 discusses the cravings and the obsession. And it doesn't do a bad job of discussing them, although it never uses the simple phrase, once we start, we can't stop, and we can't stop from starting, which it seems to me, <coughs> excuse me, is a, is a really good phrase and one that we should be adopting to explain. I, I, when, when, and I'll talk about this later when I talk about carrying the message. But when I, when I use those simple words and give a few simple examples, people who, newcomers who come immediately cotton on to They understand that. That's what yo-yo dieting is all about. So that's, that's the first discovery. Uh, for OA, it also requires from, uh, you know, for us, the identification of that which causes our cravings so we can develop a plan of eating that eliminates those things. And um, we, I don't think, have done a great job of explaining the necessity of doing that because we are not completely clear about the need to abstain before we do the steps. I'll talk about that in a second. 
and we aren't yet clear about this notion of the cravings in our in much of our literature. We are in on pages two and three of the OA twelve and twelve, and we are in the pamphlet Dignity of Choice, uh, but we aren't always clear about this notion of uncontrollable cravings in in the rest of our literature, and certainly we aren't clear in our meetings. Uh, uh, I can I speak with this a lot of experience about that. Um, I did not want to admit that my body was different. I wanted to believe what all the, um, the doctors and dietitians and nutritionists and diets and the magazines and books told me, which was that I could eat anything in moderation. I wanted to believe that I did not have abnormal cravings, that my only problem was I ate too much and that I could have you know, what, what the diets would tell me I could have once a week, once I lost my weight, I could have all my food back in moderation. Or some diets and some diet programs now give me all my food in moderation during my time of losing weight, which for me would be impossible. That's the first lesson from AA history. When Bill Wilson heard Dr. Silkworth describe it, and when he compared Dr. Silkworth's description against his own experience, he realized that he was doomed. That was his step one. And, and the importance of that step one is that unless we are absolutely despairing, unless we feel absolutely powerless, we will not take up the steps. We won't look for help other than in ourselves. We will hang on to the sense of control, of self-control. And for OAers, we are surrounded by people, so-called experts, who tell us that self-control works. And, you know, it does for people who don't have our problem. There are all kinds of people who benefit from good diets, who can eat something, but not all. You know, I, I, I know people who have lost weight simply by eliminating foods that they know they can't eat, and their minds don't send them back. And I've met people who say, you know what, instead of a full, uh, you know, two scoops of ice cream, I'll cut down to one. And they lose weight because they've just cut down on their caloric content. They don't seem to have the problem I have, which is that once I start eating ice cream, I can't stop eating ice cream. And, and, and so the defining of the problem is, is, is so important because it, it leads us to the kind of solution. So the despair is essential. And that was the first major um, uh, discovery that uh, AA uh, history has to give us. The second comes from Ebby Thatcher's visit to Bill Wilson when he brought him the message that became the 12 steps. Well, actually, there are a couple of things that Ebby taught Bill at that moment, uh, not all of which Bill learned at that moment. So I'm, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to talk about everything. But the thing that Ebby brought to Bill was a simple sentence when Bill offered him a drink. Ebby was a man known to Bill since childhood as being an alcoholic. Ebby, uh, Bill once said, uh, I, I heard, if I ever get as bad as Ebby, I'll have to stop drinking. And yet Bill was at that moment much worse than Ebby. Ebby came over, Bill offered him a drink, uh, and Ebby said, I'm not drinking. I'm not drinking. Those simple words. There was something about his eyes that Bill saw. Bill realized that Ebby was not tempted 
by the alcohol. That moment when Bill realized that there was something different about Ebby, he had changed completely. Excuse me, he had changed completely because Ebby no longer wanted the alcohol, no, no longer wanted the drink. Ebby could be around it. He could watch Bill drink alcohol and not lick his lips and say, boy, I wish I could have some. He just didn't want it. And that is recovery. That is the recovery that we all search for. It is to be able to be around the things that used to beckon to us and not have a mind that sends us back, that gives us permission to go back. The big book trumpets the word recovered. It uses it in the title page. It uses it in, I think it's 11 or 12 other places. It doesn't use the word recovering, uh, except in one place where it talks about a person who hasn't yet completed the steps. And it makes promises by the time you finish step nine of a recovery of freedom from the bondage, of, being, of this sense of neutrality that comes as you work the steps and as you finish step nine and continue with 10, 11, 12, this sense that you do not want it, that you can be around it and not want it. And I've had that uh, on a day-to-day basis for over 21 years. And I think I'm a piker compared to a whole bunch of other people in this program whom I've met uh, who have been abstinent and have that same feeling of freedom from bondage for longer than I. Um, This is a sense that's very different from simply being abstinent. There are all kinds of people who are abstinent without having this sense of freedom. They do a lot of things to keep themselves busy so that they don't uh, go back to their food. Just as in Alcoholics Anonymous, there are a lot of dry drunks who keep themselves busy using the fellowship as a way of staying away from from their their, uh, addictive substance or addictive behavior, but they still want it. And, and, And they just want to have it, but they just aren't going to do it because they want to see people or they want to they they they, they're too embarrassed uh, they would be embarrassed if they would slip that's not what i experienced not what hundreds and thousands and perhaps millions of people experience on a day-to-day basis it is the ability to watch other people enjoy what they're having and not to want it for me to watch my wife bite into a dessert and say this is the best chocolate something or other i've ever had and to be happy she's happy, and to be happy she enjoys it, and not to want to taste it. The ability to be around ice cream that's freshly made or, or anything like that, I mean, I just don't want it. It's as if it doesn't exist for me. Well, it doesn't exist for me. It is something that I do not want. And that recovered, that sense of recovery, of not wanting it, is the second lesson from AA history. Because it is what I want. It is this sense that the mental obsession no longer exists. This this ability to be around and not want it is exactly what I came into uh, OA for. I didn't come around for a diet. I found that in all kinds of other places. There are lots of good diets around. What I came for was this sense of not wanting it. And um, I... um, uh, just want to emphasize this sense of recovery rather than this sense of hanging on. The uh, the third thing 
that we have uh, to learn from AA history <clears throat> is from Bill and Dr. Bob, and that is this recovery doesn't happen unless we do the steps. For us, it may happen for other people in other ways, but for people like us, the only way we have found to get that, spirit, that recovery is to find spiritual relief, to find a power greater than ourselves that restores us to sanity. What is sanity? It is being able to look at foods that I know are my trigger foods and not want them. That's sanity. Why would I want anything that kills me? Just as my daughter doesn't want things made out of fructose and, and uh, people who have peanut and shrimp allergies don't want to eat things with shrimp or peanuts in them. Uh, that's sanity, and that's what a power greater than myself has restored me to. Now, there is no way that I would want to have and find a power greater than myself to restore me to sanity if I didn't know, A, that I was insane when it comes to my addiction, and B, that I was hopeless on my own, that I needed something outside of myself. So I, I, I have hope. I have despair from the double whammy. I have hope from looking at other people who have recovered and have what I want, this ability to be completely neutral. And then I am told by those people, do the steps, do the steps, do the steps. It is the only way that we, can, that we have found we can do it. And the AA history shows that very, very well. Uh, if you look at Bill's story uh, in the first chapter of the big book, you'll see that it was only after he did the steps and was halfway through step nine that he actually experienced this profound spiritual experience that he called. He says it comes to most men and women gradually, but for him it was sudden. And he experienced that and was lifted into a new dimension. He no longer wanted uh, to drink, and he had that for many, many years until he died. Um, Dr. Bob experienced it in, in another way. When Bill visited, uh, found, and met Dr. Bob and spent a lot of time with him, and they talked about these the steps. The, the, they, they weren't 12 at the time, but the steps. Dr. Bob, they loved it, and they talked, and they helped each other out, and they kept each other from drinking. But when Dr. Bob went on his own to a medical convention, he got stinking drunk. And, 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 and it is a wonderful story. It's found in AA Comes of Age where, where uh, you know, he comes back from this convention. He's drunk. He's picked up by his nurse. Uh, and and uh, Bill and Anne, Dr. Bob's wife, discover that Dr. Bob has to do an operation in three or four days. And no one else can do it, and it's important for him to do it. Um, and Bill, um, um, uh, oh, they tried different remedies. They did lots of coffee and sauerkraut and tomato juice, I think, were the, were the uh, uh, things of choice. And uh, uh, and I, I'm just reading from Alcoholics Anonymous Comes of Age, uh, page 71. Um, we got Bob back home into bed. Right then we made an alarming discovery. He had to perform a certain operation that only he could do. Uh, by the way, he was a proctologist. That meant that he operated literally from behind. And, you know, the thought of a drunk doing that is just really scary. Anyway, the deadline was just three days ago. He simply had to do the job himself. And here he was shaking like a leaf. Could we get him sober in time? Ann and I took turns around the clock trying to taper the old boy off. Early in the morning of the operation, he was almost sober. I had slept in the room with him. Uh, glancing across toward his bed, I saw that he was wide awake but still shaking. I'll never forget the look he gave me as he said, Bill, I am going to go through with it. 
I thought he meant the operation. No, he said, I mean this thing we have been talking about. Then he says, Anne and I drove him to the hospital at 9 o'clock. I handed him a bottle of beer to steady his nerves so he could hold a knife, and he went in. We returned the house to the house and sat down to wait. After what seemed an endless time, he phoned all had gone well. But after that, he didn't come home for hours. Despite the awful strain, he'd left the hospital, got into his car, and commenced to visit creditors and others he had harmed by his behavior. He did the steps. That, to the time of his death 15 years later, Dr. Bob never took another drink of alcohol. So it was the steps that helped Bob. It wasn't the fellowship that Bill brought him. It wasn't the love that Bill gave him or or Anne's love, his wife's love. It wasn't writing, journaling, um, meetings, um, uh, I'm trying to remember the uh, abstinence, um, sponsorship, uh, a plan of action, um, whatever the other tools are. It wasn't anonymity. It had nothing to do with that. It was the steps. The steps gave him recovery. And that is the third lesson from AA's history. You've got to do the steps to recover. And we've lost a lot of that, uh, both in OA and, and according to Joe and Charlie, uh, my, my mentors, uh, um, in, in so many ways. I've never met them, but they certainly have mentored me through their, through their talks, um, according to them, in AA as well. That, that, that the 12 step fellowships have become a comfortable place for people to go and to get comfort and to get love and understanding beyond their wildest dreams, right? But, but that the steps are not emphasized as they used to be. I hope that's no longer true in AA. Joan Charlie certainly had a tremendous influence on AA. And I hope that's less and less emphasized in OA, although there are meetings where that happens. I know that where people just don't talk about the steps. They talk about tools. They talk about all kinds of other things, but they don't talk about the steps as the program of recovery. I mean, what, what is the, 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 the purpose of every OA group? To carry the message, and the message is of the steps to the compulsive eater who still suffers. So that, to me, is the third major um, lesson to be learned. You have to do the steps. And the fourth from AA history is very clear. No matter how you do the steps, if you do them quickly, honestly, and intensely, you will recover. And, and that to me is, is essential to, to know. I am a big book thumper. I believe that the big book has all kinds of great messages for working and directions for working the steps. And I do workshops about that. And I've developed a, uh, you know, a whole way of working the steps based on the directions of the big book. I know they work. I've seen them work in others. Uh, there are all kinds of people I've met all over the world who have used the big book to, to, to recover. But Dr. Bob didn't use the big book to recover. Bill didn't use the big book to recover. And until the big book was written three or four years after these guys recovered, people didn't use the big book to recover. They used all kinds of different ways. Bill had his methods. Dr. Bob had his methods. When Dr. Bob... Um, schooled other people, they developed their methods. There was Clarence in, in uh, Cleveland and, and uh, Bill D and I don't know, all these other guys who were, who, who were members of, of uh, what, had, what had not yet then been, been named Alcoholics Anonymous. They followed generally six steps, um, and, and they were steps that were taken from the uh, Oxford uh, groups, uh, five of them, 
um, I can tell you, um, uh, you can find them um, on page. Oh, let me just find it. I think it's 260. 262 and 3 of the fourth edition of the big book and page 292 of the third edition. Um, and this is a cha- the uh, story called He Sold Himself Short. And there are in other places in, the, in, the, in um, Alcoholics Come of Age, you can find them as well. But they're as well described. Uh, complete deflation, that's step one. Dependence and guidance from a higher power, that would be step 11. Moral inventory, that would be step four. Confession, step five. Restitution, step nine. And continued work with other alcoholics, step 12. So one, four, five, nine, 11, and 12. Those were the six steps, uh, not necessarily in that order. And, and those six steps were done in all kinds of different ways. Uh, Bill has never described exactly how he did them. <clears throat> Excuse me. But Doctor, there is this description on pages 262 and 263 of the uh, fourth edition of the big book in a, in a, where Dr. Bob's method of doing them is described, at least with this one man who came from Chicago and, and stayed in Akron, uh, Ohio, where Dr. Bob lived for two or three weeks, going spending time with Dr. Bob, going to other people, going to meetings. Uh, and then one day, the day before he was to go back to Chicago, it was Dr. Bob's afternoon off. He had me to the office, and we spent three or four hours formally going through the six-step program as it was at that time, and then he lists the six steps. Dr. Bob led me through all of these steps. At the moral inventory, he brought up several of my bad personality traits or character defects, such as selfishness, conceit, jealousy, carelessness, intolerance, ill temper, sarcasm, and resentment. We went over these at great length, three to four hours, great length, and then he finally asked me if I wanted these defects of character removed. When I said yes, we both knelt at his desk and prayed, each of us asking to have these defects taken away. This picture is still vivid. If I live to be 100, it will always stand out in my mind. It was very impressive. I wish that every AA could have the benefit of this type of sponsorship today. Uh, Dr. Bob always emphasized the religious angle very strongly. I think it helped. I know it helped me. Dr. Bob then led me through the restitution step in which I made a list of all the persons I had harmed and worked out the ways and the means of slowly making restitution. So this man did the steps and made his list at step eight and was on his way to doing step nine in three to four hours meeting with Dr. when he met with Dr. Bob. There's proof that you can do the steps pretty quickly. Uh, the big book in uh, the appendix, uh, uh, appendix uh, two and spiritual experience talks about what often takes place in a few months. You can do the steps quickly, and there are many different ways of doing it. There's a back-to-the-basics movement in AA, and I believe also some in OA, well, it's named in different ways, where you, you can do the steps by attending particular meetings where you formally do the steps in, in a six-week period. It obviously works for people. And so the fourth lesson, excuse me, <clears throat> the fourth lesson is you do the steps intensely, honestly, and quickly. Um, and you find a way that works for you. It's all about action and not about thinking. It's not about waiting for something to happen to you. It is doing what has to be done 
to get the spiritual relief that you need. And it's all, and this action is, is essential. And for people in OA who have been couch potatoes, whether they eat too much or too little, their bodies don't move around a lot. Um, these people need to understand that sitting around waiting for something to happen is not going to give them the relief they need. It's action. And how you do the steps is less important than whether you do the steps, than the fact that you do the steps. The first time I, I worked the steps, and I, I, I relapsed for uh, over a six or seven year period before I finally found the way of doing the steps that made sense to me. I learned, and I learned how to develop a plan of eating that got me abstinent. But the first time I, I did step four, I didn't do it the way uh, I've now been taught and that I now think is a wonderful way of doing it. I did it in a kind of a different way, but I met with my sponsor, and it took, it took about eight hours when I met with him, and he led me through the kinds of things that I would normally now have, uh, uh, find in, in my own step four because of the way I now do step four. It didn't matter, though. He led me through those things. He pointed out defects of character in me that I couldn't see when I did the step four the way he asked, he suggested I do it. I now find my defects of character becoming much clearer uh, now that I know how to do step four in a different way. But he led me through it in his own way, the way he had been taught. Uh, he was an AA as well as an OA, the way he had been taught. And as he led me to that, I had this sense of where I had gone wrong, and I began to realize where I could make amends. And, and when I made amends, my spiritual awakening came, and my freedom from the bondage of food came. Sadly, the reasons I relapsed are, um, uh, had very little to do with that uh, one moment of recovery. It was that I did not, I, I thought I could now go back and eat all the foods that I had given up, because now I had... I could listen to all the dieters who told me that I could have my, uh, my only problem was moderation. And I did not accept for six or seven years the notion that, that there was something wrong with my body or abnormal about my body and that I couldn't eat certain food. Once I, I realized that, uh, you know, my, my recovery has been continuous for over 21 years. So that to me is, is the fourth lesson. You do the steps and it doesn't, you know, you do it in a way that makes sense to you, and I like the big book way, but you do it and you just persevere. And no matter how you do it, if you've done it honestly and intensely and quickly, you will recover if you do it, if you take the action. I have, I have close friends in this program whose recovery is very powerful um, and, and, and who, who are mentors to me who don't do the steps the way I do the steps and sponsor differently from the way I sponsor. And they've recovered, and the people they sponsor recover. So who am I to say the big book is the only way? Clearly, it wasn't the only way, because people recovered before the big book was written, before the six steps became 12 steps, before the directions for doing step four that I follow, that I use from the big book, the three different uh, forms, resentment, uh, fear, and, se and sex conduct, uh, were developed. People recovered, and people could recover in three to four hours if they had someone as charismatic as Dr. Bob to take them through the steps. I mean, it's very rare to find someone who has that charisma who can, who can affect you so powerfully with his 
with his personality. But if there were a Dr. Bob around and you met, meet him and he, and he or she says to you, we can do the steps together in three to four hours, and you follow that person blindly and just surrender to that person's approach and just do what that person tells you to do, assuming that person has that, has that recovery that you want, you will probably find the same recovery that people found in, in, from Dr. Bob. So that's the fourth lesson. The fifth lesson is you have to carry the message. You have to carry the message. You have to carry the message. That is what step 12 is all about. You cannot keep what you have once you've recovered unless you give it away. And you have to work your ass off to give it away. You have to do whatever is necessary, uh, whatever is required of you. You cannot rest on your laurels. You cannot stand, stay put. You must do whatever you can to carry the message. And that's the other thing that all the people I respect who do the program differently from me have in common with me is that we do whatever we can to help other people to carry the message. And sometimes we certainly don't succeed, but we, if that's not important. Step 12 having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, we try to carry this message to the compulsive eater who still suffers and to practice these principles in all our affairs. We have no time to waste. You know, Clancy, the great AA speaker, uh, he calls alcoholics pukes, and he says, you've got to spend time with the pukes outside of yourself so you don't spend any time with the puke inside of yourself. And I, that is the fact. We suffer from this disability. Our mind will always bring us back to the food or to the things that used to beckon to us. Alcohol, in, in Clancy's case, and in Bill's case, and Dr. Bob's case, will always bring us back if we don't think of others uh, and think of ourselves. So this is not a self-indulgent program. It's not even selfish in, in the normal sense of the word selfish. It's selfless. It's all about helping others. The big book talks about our, our, um, our job now is to be of maximum usefulness to others. We cannot hesitate to carry the message. And the AA history shows that because AA history starts, AA starts not when Bill recovers, which was sometime in, in December of 1934. It starts when Dr. Bob recovers which he attributed to June 10th of 1935, and certain research seems to show was uh, June the 17th, 1935. But at any rate, um, it was at that moment, because it was at that moment that Bill's message that he carried to Dr. Bob took root, and there were now two people, and AA was now formed. Now, what impelled Bill? Well, Bill tried to carry the message to for six months to dozens of people in New York, and he would take them out of the missions and out of the, out of the uh, drunk tanks and uh, whatever they were called then, and, and preach at them. And I'll talk about that a little bit later, but his preaching, that's uh, another lesson, is how to preach or how to carry the message. But Bill could not get one of those people sober, and, and, and horrible things happened. He took them home. He would feed them. Uh, or, no, so he wouldn't feed them. Lois would feed them. Um, his wife, Lois, would feed them. Uh, but, but these guys would all, all go back to drinking, and, and, and one of them uh, committed suicide in Bill's uh, uh, 
uh, Bill's and uh, Lois's house. Uh, one threatened uh, Lois with a butcher knife. Uh, one one stole Lois's fur coat, the only thing of any value she had to to, to buy uh, alcohol. Um, and he was sitting around with Lois, and according to Lois, uh, she she told this to a number of people, and I, I absolutely believe her. Bill was sitting around after about six months of saying, I, I've got to give this up. I haven't been able to keep one alcoholic sober. And she looked at him and she said, yes, you have. You're sober. And that moment when Lois told Bill that he was sober, and Bill began to realize what kept him sober was that he was helping others without success, without success, but he was helping them. That was a, a major moment in AA history. And it was carried through when Bill found himself with a missed business opportunity alone with very little money in the, at the Mayflower Hotel uh, on May the uh, 11th, um, 1935, uh, where the gay sounds of the bar. Hello? Lori, continue. Hello? Hello, Lori. Hi. Yes, Lori, we hear you. Just some technical issue. You were at where the gay sounds of the bar. That's oh, where fine. Okay, okay, good. That's where I was. Okay, yeah. good. Thank you very much. Where the okay. gay sounds of the bar. Thank you. Apologize right. for okay. the technical issue. Go no ahead. No problem. It was, nice. it was nice music, and it's okay. Yes, it was. <laughs> okay. Uh, okay. So uh, he, he said, he's standing outside this bar, and he, it's, he's been six months sober, and he's got a business opportunity that went flat, and he suddenly realizes that he is entranced by, he is tempted by that bar. He's tempted to go in and have a little bit to drink. He, he thinks maybe he could have to sit around because he's lonely and he wants to find someone, and... Um, and here's what he says in Alcoholics Anonymous Comes of Age. Um, I was seized with the thought, I am going to get, this is page 65, I'm going to get drunk. Or no, maybe I won't get drunk. Maybe I'll just go into that bar and drink some ginger ale and scrape up an acquaintance. Then I panicked. That was really a gift. I had never panicked before at the threat of alcohol. Maybe this meant that my sanity had been restored. I remembered that in trying to help other people, I had stayed sober myself. For the first time, I deeply realized it. I thought... You need another another alcoholic to talk to. You need another alcoholic just as much as he needs you. This desperation that Bill felt was a major moment in the history of AA. Without it, AA could not have survived and would not have prospered as it it, uh, has. It is the need, it is my understanding that I cannot keep my recovery unless I give it away to someone else, unless I try to help someone, whether or not that other person recovers. It is absolutely irrelevant whether that other person recovers. Uh, what is important is that I do my best, that I try. And, and that desperation led Bill to, uh, to phone calls where he eventually found Dr. Bob, and, that, and, and, and when he talked to Dr. Bob, and I'm going now into the... Um, Oh, I forgot. I haven't numbered them. One, two, three, four, five, six. The sixth message, which was how to carry the message. Because what Bill discovered in the first six months was that he had carried the message very poorly. 
He had carried the message the way it had been carried to him by Ebby. Ebby told him that he had had a spiritual awakening by working uh, the, uh, the steps of uh, the methods of the Oxford groups, and that that had got him sober. Ebby didn't have to tell Bill that he was different. Uh, Ebby didn't have to tell Bill that he had changed. Bill knew Ebby cold, and he saw that Ebby had changed. Bill knew Ebby's story. But Bill took Ebby's method of carrying the message uh, on face value. You just tell people how good you feel. You tell people how God has entered your life. You tell people that you don't want to drink. You preach down to them. If they do what you did, they can be as good as you are. It was when when Bill was feeling very desperate and feeling that he, he had not succeeded that he went to see Dr. Silkworth. And Dr. Silkworth said, and again, you can find this quote in many different places, but he 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 talked about... Um, he said, I, I, just, I haven't been able to, to, to get anyone to recover. And Dr. Silkworth is on page 67 and 68 of, the, of AA Comes of Age, a great book which I, I highly recommend. Um, Dr. Silkworth says, uh, Listen, look, Bill, you're having nothing but failure because you're preaching at these alcoholics. You're talking to them about the Oxford Group precepts of being absolutely honest, absolutely pure, absolutely unselfish, and absolutely loving. So this is a very big order. Then you top it off by harping on this mysterious spiritual experience of yours. No wonder they point their fingers to their heads and go out and get drunk. And then he talks about turning the strategy the other way around, and he talks about talking about despair. Um, you've got, he says you've got to deflate these people first. Give them the medical business and give it to them hard. Pour it right into them about the obsession that condemns them to drink. That's the mental obsession that means that they keep going back to it and the physical sensitivity or allergy to the body that condemns them to go mad or die if they keep on drinking, because they keep on drinking. They get these cravings. Coming from another alcoholic, one alcoholic talking to another, maybe that will crack those tough egos deep down. Only then can you begin to try out your other medicine, the ethical principles you picked up from the Oxford group. And the first person he tried this on was Dr. Bob. And he, he talked about that. So he, he, when he talks to Dr. Bob, he tells him his experience. He says, this is what happened to me. And Dr. Bob kept saying, yes, that's, I'm like that. So, it, uh, you know, and, and Bill says on page 70 of 80 Comes of Edge, it wasn't any spiritual teaching of mine that, that got Dr. Bob. It was those twin ogres of madness and death, the allergy plus the obsession that triggered him into a new life. It was Dr. Silkworth's idea, uh, confirmed by William James, uh, a great book that William James wrote, that struck him at great depth. He goes on and says, you see, our talk was a completely mutual thing. I had quit preaching. I knew that I needed this alcoholic as much as he needed me. This was it. And this mutual give and take is at the very heart of all of AA's 12-step work today. This was how to carry the message. The final missing link was located right there in my first talk with Dr. Bob. So we must carry the message, and then we have to talk about how we carry the message. Uh, and Bill learned that you, you, the way to carry the message is to tell your story in ways that they will understand whether or not your story is their story. And if they do see that your story is their story, they then understand the double whammy. Bill says in a, in a pamphlet, uh, Three Talks to Medical Societies, 
He says, in fact, we aim to produce a crisis to cause them to hit bottom, as AA say. And I may say that, uh, you know, that we, you talk about people lifting the bottom. You, you, you hit your bottom when you stop digging. And you can reach your bottom, as I did, before you become 400, 500 pounds, or you can wait until you become four or 500 pounds. It doesn't really matter. But at any rate, of course you will understand, Bill goes on, that this is all done by indirection. We never pronounce sentences, nor do we tell any alcoholic what, we, what he must do. We don't even tell him he's an alcoholic. Relating the seriousness of our own cases, we leave him to draw his conclusions. But once he has accepted the fact that he is an alcoholic, and the further fact that he's powerless to recover unaided, the battle is half won. So you, you, you talk about the allergy of the body, the obsession of the mind, the double whammy. Can't stop once you've started, can't stop, start from starting. As the AAs have it, he's hooked, he's caught as if in a psychological vice. If the jaws of it do not grip him tightly enough at first, more drinking will almost invariably turn up the screw to the point where he will cry, enough. Then, as we say, he softened up. This reduces him to a state of complete dependence on whatever or whoever can stop his drinking. He's in exactly the same mental fix as a cancer patient who becomes dependent, abjectly, hopelessly dependent, if you will, on what you men of science do for cancer. And then this sentence comes that I think is one of the great sentences. Better still, he becomes sweetly reasonable, truly open-minded, as only the dying can be. So how to carry the message? We have to engender despair and hopelessness. We have to explain from our own experience so that there's identification, A, that we were hopeless, and B, that even though hopeless, we have recovered. That, that message of hopelessness on our own and recovery through the steps is how to carry that message. And, you know, Dr. Bob says in his last major talk, he says, uh, in, my, uh, in uh, my mind, the spirit of service was of prime importance. The spirit of giving, and I talked about carrying the message, was of, of prime importance. But I found that it had to be backed up with some knowledge in our subject. I used to go to the hospital and stand there and talk. I talked many a time to a chap in the bed for five or six hours. I don't know how he ever stood me for five or six hours, but he did. We must have hidden his clothes. Anyway, it came to me that I probably didn't know too much about what I was saying. We are stewards, and a steward is a guardian or a trustee. We are stewards of what we have, and that includes our time. I was not giving a good account of my stewardship of time when it took me six hours to say something to this man that I could have said in an hour if I had known what I was talking about. I certainly was not a very efficient individual. This whole notion about figuring out how to carry the message is really significant in AA's history and significant in, in that we can, a significant lesson that we can learn because we, each of us, have to learn how best to carry our message of recovery. First of all, we have to recover. But second of all, we have to take from our experiences the lessons that become universal that really speak to the heart of the, of the uh, perspective of, of the newcomer or the person who's still suffering, whether newcomer or not. And this message must, at least from AA history tells us it must, be a message of despair coupled with hope. Despair on your own, hope with the steps. And, and I, I can't emphasize that enough. I don't hear that enough in OA. I, I hear so often... Oh, welcome to OA. You'll love it here. 
It's full of love and compassion. We understand you. We love you unconditionally. We've been where you are. We know what it's like. Uh, come here and you'll feel much better. And OA is, oh, it's not about weight. It's really about spirituality. I have found my God, and my God has given me everything I've ever wanted, which is what Bill did. That was the preaching that Bill did in the first six months. What the newcomer ought to hear, at least if we learn from the lessons of AA history, is I found out from my eating experience that I couldn't stop once I started, and I couldn't stop from starting. And, and here, here are my stories of not being able to stop once I've started. Here's my eating history. Here's all of the excuses I used to give myself for going back to the food. So I was hopeless because I was caught in a vicious circle. Because what, if I can't stop once I've started and I can't stop from starting, I'll always yo-yo. I'll be absent for a little while, and then my mind will somehow persuade me to go back. That's my experience. If the person is a compulsive eater, is an addict, as I am, that person will ultimately say, yes, that's me. I'm like that too. And then they'll say, and then I can say, and what I have now is completely different. I can be around foods and not want them. That's the miracle. I can watch other people enjoy them and not want them. I can be in a restaurant where the chef has just concocted the world's greatest recipe and then died. And it'll never be known, and this is the only sample of it, and not want to eat it. Because I have recovered using the 12 steps. I recovered finding a spiritual awakening through the 12 steps. I have found a power greater than myself that has restored me to sanity. That's, that is the despair and the hope. That's steps one and two. And that AA history has to teach us. Um, I'm debating whether to talk about one other thing. I'm just looking at my time. I, 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 um, I want to talk a bit about another aspect of AA history, which actually I hadn't written down, so I've now got uh, ten rather than nine. And that is uh, the power greater than ourselves. Um, AA was founded by Christians. Um, the, Bill, Bill became a Christian after he had his spiritual awakening. He was, he was raised as a Christian, but he, he, his grandfather who raised him was, a, was a, a real agnostic, if not atheist, and, and Bill was taught to have a great deal of scorn for organized religion. But he became quite religious within the Oxford groups. Dr. Bob was a deeply religious man and, and never stopped being religious. Uh, Bill almost converted to Catholicism, but decided it would not be a good idea uh, as, as the co-founder of AA to, to uh, show that kind of conversion. The lesson, though, comes when Bill writes the 12 steps, creates the 12 steps as he's writing the, the big book, brings it to uh, AA meetings, uh, the one in New York, where there are a whole bunch of agnostics and atheists. And his original writing of the 12 steps has people kneeling, kneeling to say prayers. And it just says, God. And, and the atheist agnostics kept saying, you can't do that. That will throw out people like us. You must find a way to soften it. And the steps themselves now incorporate the compromise that existed. God as we understood him. Or as some of us say, God as we understand God. Or higher power as we understand higher power. This invitation to find our own. And it happened when Ebby brought the message. Ebby was had become a deeply religious man. I mean, maybe he was always religious, but he had become uh, spiritually uplifted to the, to the steps of the Oxford groups. And when Bill said, I can't accept a God of religion, because Ebby has said, I've got religion, 
Ebby said, why don't you choose your own conception of God? And this invitation to find a spirituality that is not related to any particular religion or any doctrine, this openness to your own sense of what is higher to you, allowed me to come into this program. I have never had a personal God. I have never even had a spiritual kind of power in my life, uh, you know, such as a creator of the universe or a spirit of the universe. Nothing. No sense of that. But what I do have are some things that are more important to me than I am. Truth, love, justice, and beauty. And these became my higher power, the very abstract concepts. And the directions I get from them are the directions of sort of the goal that I want to follow, the path I want to follow, rather than being pushed from behind or given advice or or impetus by a power that somehow exists in, in the world. I don't believe truth, love, justice, and beauty have their own separate existence at all. They're abstract concepts. But this openness to develop my own sense of the higher power allowed me to be in this program and allowed me to have a spiritual awakening that restored me to sanity. So that's an, another major, major lesson from AA history, this openness and not being closed uh, to, to, um, to a sense of what a higher power might be. And uh, uh, that leads me into my last two um, uh, lessons from AA history. And they're not related to the message or the 12 steps. They're related more... Well, they are related to the traditions and uh, to the concepts. Um, Bill discusses them at length in the, in the book, AA Comes of Age, or Alcoholics Anonymous Comes of Age, a, a brilliant, brilliant book. Um, and I, I just want to take a few lessons from that. The traditions themselves were developed by Bill as experience that, were, that derived from the history of AA. Uh, and so every tradition has its history of mistakes, uh, mistakes that AA learned from. Excuse me. And um, in 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 one chapter, and this is um, of the um, of the AA twelve and twelve, where he discusses tradition uh, four, which is uh, what is tradition four? Tradition four is each group should be autonomous except in matters affecting other groups or OA as a whole. He 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 tells this wonderful story about people, about groups that developed their own uh, rules. They had all kinds of plans for what was going to happen. Uh, they wanted in their, in their group uh, a, a clubhouse and then a hospital and a dry-out center and missionaries, and they had all kinds of rules. And uh, there was a promoter of, of these rules, and they had 61 rules and regulations. But it didn't work, and, and everything fell apart. Um, uh, the inevitable explosion, and everyone was really afraid because everything just went bad. And then he says on page 149 of, of the AA 12 and 12, oh, he says, a chill, choked damp of fear and frustration fell over the, uh, the group. When that lifted, a wonderful thing happened. The head promoter wrote the foundation office. He said he wished he'd paid some attention to AA experience. Then he did something else that was become an AA classic. It all went on a little card about golf score size. The cover read, Middleton Group Number 1, Rule Number 62. Remember, there have been 61 rules. Once the card was unfolded, a single pungent sentence leaped to the eye. Don't take yourself too damn seriously. For me, that is the essence of the traditions. They are not rules, guidelines, regulations. They are traditions. They're lessons learned from history. 
from the history of success, but more from the history of mistakes. Um, in, in AA Comes of Age, um, there's, uh, he talks on page 82, Bill writes, Speaking of fears, a story turned up at the office. It seems that AA had made a start in Tokyo. As usual, it began among the American drunks, but then it spread out to the Japanese. Soon there was quite a Japanese contingent, of which we heard very good reports. Then one day a Japanese appeared at the New York office. He had heard that his fellows in the homeland now had AA groups and had begun to write to them to get the inside track. Now in a state of great alarm, he said, Awful things are going on over there in Japan. Did you know that they have two kinds of AAs over there? Of course they have the 12 steps, just as we have them here. But there's now another AA leader who has written 10 steps, and they're charging 100 yen to attend his meetings. Bill goes on, he says, Once upon a time, that sort of heresy would have scared us to death. Today, it is only amusing. We know that they will soon be infiltrated by common sense and experience. They will find that nobody can professionalize AA's 12th step, and the elder who means well and does badly will bend his ways. He will finally see that alcoholism is a quest for survival in which the good is sometimes the enemy of the best and that only the best can bring the true good. I, I must make my amends here. I've, I've told this story wrongly. I just reread this. and I used to say A.A. writes back and says, well, the truth will out, the truth will be told by experience. I think that's what Bill says, but it's not that they wrote the letter back. Uh, they just talk about it. There's no problem. We learn from our experiences, and if we didn't learn from our experiences, how in the world could we make amends? Um, amends is all about re rebirthing ourselves, about being reborn, about changing who we are by looking at mistakes we've made and changing as a result of those mistakes. We don't apply rules backwards and say the rules exist and therefore we must follow them. We look at guidelines, we see what they say, we try things out, and if we fail, we learn from our failures. If we succeed, we're happy. Um, I was a member of, uh, of a well-known secret organization in OA that pops up uh, quite often and quite too often called the Traditions Police. And we're the people who say you can't do that, it's contrary to Tradition 6.7, or it's contrary to uh, OA policy number you know, 1982E and F. Uh, people who are more than willing to interpret and regulate interpret the traditions, interpret the policies, and make orders about what can and can't be done. People go to me, you can't do that, it's bad for this, it's terrible for this. Rather than looking at what the issue is and whether it assists or does not assist um, uh, carrying the message. Our fifth tradition is the most significant. It is what it is the essence of the 12th step. The 12th step is having had a spiritual wake, awakening as the result of these steps. We try to carry this message, the, this message of these steps, this message of having a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, try to carry this message to compulsive leaders and to practice these principles in all our affairs. Tradition five is each group has but one primary purpose, to carry its message to the compulsive eater who still suffers. That's our primary purpose. It's not to give love. It's not to give understanding. It's not to give compassion. It's not to pat people's backs. It's not to uh, hug them. It's not to ring around the room and say, keep coming back. It works if you work it and bring in a lot of love. It's to carry the message. And what is the message? Recovery through the 12 steps. Spiritual awakening through the 12 steps. How do you carry that message? You carry it in the way I've, I've just described. But... If you look at that, then the group has to decide whether it is carrying the message well and how to carry the message. 
and all the traditions there are to guide us and help us. You know, there's controversy. Can you use um, uh, non-OA material in a meeting? Well, there's all kinds of discussions about that in our OA 12 and 12, and there is some discussion about that. No, there's no discussion about that in the OA 12 and 12 because Dr. Bob used to do, use the Bible all the time, you know, and it's not AA approved material. But it, it stems from Tradition 6, which is we ought not endorse, finance, or lend our name to any related facility or outside enterprise. So there's all kinds of material that we would not want to lend our name to because we don't want problems of money, property, and prestige divert us from our primary purpose. Our primary purpose to carry the message to those who still suffer. So material that is not OA approved is generally material that is external, that is selling something, that is, is, is talking about something that isn't part of the 12 steps. Even though it might discuss the steps, it is, it is being sold. Um, that doesn't necessarily apply to material that promotes the 12 steps, that doesn't, um, that isn't an outside facility or outside enterprise. But we, we read these traditions and we read our rules and we say, you can't do that when we should be saying, gee, maybe there's a problem, let's look at it, let's discuss it. So I just wanted to put that in there, that traditions are being used in OA as regulations, rules instead of guidelines. And uh, AA's history, Rule 62, don't take yourself too damn seriously. And the last one comes from the 12 concepts. And um, just trying to see if I can find them. I should have them somewhere. And uh, I do have them somewhere. Just a moment. Um, and the, specifically, uh, the 12th concept, and specifically a subset of the 12th concept, which is that we reach all important decisions by discussion, vote, and whenever possible, by substantial unanimity. Bill goes at great length in some of his other literature in, in the, in the, in the um, just like the name of, of, of the book that he wrote on, on the 12 concepts, um, but he writes about the sense of finding unanimity, that sometimes the most important person in the room is the lone dissenter, the person who, who says this is wrong and let's talk about it and let's really work it through and that we must carry and that person must carry the same weight in fact even more weight than a bunch of people who all agree with each other um, that's why consensus and not majority is important that's why we should reach substantial unanimity that's why robert's rules of procedure should not be used in oa meetings even though we use them all the time in assemblies and in 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 our world service business conference robert's rules of procedure is a wonderful way of Finding the majority concept. It is not a great way of finding substantial unanimity. You know, to, to, I've been to too many meetings in which, you know, they're parliamentarians, and you can't do that because you, it doesn't, you know, this subamendment doesn't uh, follow the principles of Roberts and what a subamendment should be. It has nothing to do with reaching substantial unanimity. Uh, those of us who have been to World Service Business Conference will know the amount of attention that is paid to. Uh, form rather than substance. The amount of time that's raised with points of order that's raised with, is this a, a proper amendment? Um, uh, should we go into committee of the whole? Uh, how many minutes do we have to talk instead of listening to our hearts? If we are truly a fellowship that is governed by a higher power, in, you know, tradition, what is tradition too? Um, 
if, if not that whole concept, there's but one ultimate authority, a loving God as he may express himself in our group conscience. Shouldn't our job be to find the group conscience? And shouldn't that group conscience be found to substantial unanimity? And shouldn't that substantial unanimity be found by listening and talking and being free to express ourselves without worrying about the formality of it? Well, I've said enough. And I've talked for quite some time, and um, I think I've talked enough. And I'm more than happy. I, I believe the next step is to answer questions, and I'm happy to do that. So thank you. Thank you so much, Lori, for this uh, revealing and uh, very interesting study, Lessons for OA from AA's History. We thank you very much. And now, yes, we will open the line for any questions you might have related to this morning's topic. You can do so by pressing star 1 to unmute. Santa H. from New Jersey. I hear Santa H. Did I hear anybody else? Sue G. Sue G. Go ahead, Santa. Questions only. Good morning. Uh, thank you for your share this morning, and I, and thank you for all the questions that you have brought to my head. And I will keep it to a question because I'm sure there will be many others who have much to say and comment on if time was permitted. Um, this is my question. It's really a situation, and I just wanted you to answer it for me to the best of your ability based on your history of AA. If Bill or Bob um, were to have the situation, in your opinion, how do you think they would handle this? An individual came to them, and they were working the steps, and this person could be at step four or at step five. Um, they broke the abstinence by taking um, a drink of a can of beer, for example, and they said to Bill or Bob that they admitted that they broke their abstinence and they're in the middle of the steps and they want to continue doing the steps. Um, would Bill or Bob tell the, tell the individual, oh, no, we must go back to step one? Uh, will he continue to quickly get them through the steps uh, to step 12? Or would he tell them to find another sponsor? Or maybe he may have some other option that I'm not be aware of. And how would you link that to the, to the statement Love and tolerance is our code, and with that, I pass. Wow. <laughs> uh, I, 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 I will not speak for Bill or Dr. Bob. And I, 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 can't, I, I know that um, uh, Dr. Bob could be tough, and he also could be very loving. Um, and it really depended on his sense of the individual. You know, Sister Ignatia, who worked at the, uh, who was, uh, ran the, the, the hospital that Dr. Bob uh, sent a lot of drunks to, uh, I heard I heard a talk by, by her uh, where she talked about how Bob. I mean, Bob would give us his time so much, and 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 uh, uh, his his medical expertise as well. And he'd get these people into the drug ward, and he'd he'd spend so much time with them. But there were times when he'd say to Sister Ignatia, "Kick this guy out. He doesn't really want it." So Dr. Bob, it seemed to me, uh, he could be kind and loving. He himself relapsed, right? I mean, he was three, three weeks sober, and then he relapsed when he goes to that convention. Um, uh, and, then, and then he gets sober, and he immediately does the steps, right, the same day. So Dr. Bob had tremendous compassion, but he also, I guess, had a, a, a BS detector, a built-in BS detector, and he did not spend a lot of time with people who didn't, who didn't really want the program. So I, I don't think there's a simple answer. Um, 
but I, I also don't know if either Dr. Bob or Bill would have established rules for that, uh, sort of a one-size-fits-all rule. I, I'm pretty sure they would not have. Uh, certainly I don't. Um, and um, uh, there's another story, and, and it's, it's in, the, it's in the, the big book, a story about a guy who, who kept uh, challenging uh, the higher power business and uh, that is sober, and people can't kick him out. They want to kick him out but he, because he keeps laughing at them in the meetings. Uh, but then he, he goes on a bender, goes out of town, goes on a bender, and he phones people, and they don't phone him back. Um, they're, they, they're convinced that he has to become more despairing. And finally, you know, he, he, um, he, he shows up to the home of another AAer and asks to, to join in prayer. So some people have to be treated really tough, and some people don't. Um, some people, uh, you know, I mean, I, I, my own approach to anyone who relapses is what mistakes did you make? What can you learn from the mistakes you made? How can you prevent yourself from making those mistakes in the past? Let's get you going. Now, I, I would say my own experience is that if you have relapsed, it takes a little bit of time to have the substance leave your body. Uh, and I guess it depends on how much you've indulged uh, as to how long that might take. Uh, I certainly wouldn't say to a person uh, who just ate uh, a whole cake or a gallon of ice cream or something like that, oh, uh, you know, let's just get you back on to step four. Uh, I, I, I would probably say let's, let's get you a couple of days of abstinence. Uh, let's figure out what mistakes you made. Uh, let's, you know, I can talk about that in great detail, but I won't. Unless some people want me to talk about how to deal with relapse. But um, uh, I, I would say, uh, but, but let's, let's get you back, you know, onto step three. Let's say a step three prayer and let's, let's go through the... Uh, Let's get you back onto step four because let's do the steps quickly. Um, I've seen a number of people who do the steps slowly and, um, and, and end up being told they have to um, uh, sort of go back to step one, and step one takes them you know, months and months to complete. I've seen a lot of people continue to go through cycles and cycles of relapse. So I don't think there's a, a set answer, uh, but I, I do, th and I think that that's really the answer, is that there is no one way of doing it, and one size does not fit all in this program. It all depends on how desperate you are and how willing you are to do the work that's required. And I'll tell you, if someone came to me and said, you know, I had a relapse, I'm in terrible shape, please help me, I would never fire, I'd never have fired that person, I never would. I would say, let's see what we can do. And, and, and if that person, uh, and, and I mean, I speak also from personal experience, I have a friend who, who um, was suffering from tremendous addiction, not in, not in a way, but a, a drug addiction. And um, ultimately we helped, and ultimately we stopped helping. And it was stopping helping him that got him to the despair he needed uh, to, to really to go back to his 12-step program. So it all depends on whether you, you see the sincerity or you don't see the sincerity. But the concept that one size fits all, I think, would be contrary to Bill's and probably Dr. Bob's whole approach to the to the steps into the program. Okay. Thank you, Santa, for the question. Sue G, your question, please. Hi, it's Sue G, um, and I have a, a a very big fat question for you, Lori. I love your shares, and uh, I'm, I'm thinking about AA history, 
as it applies to OA history and as it applies to you can poke you're, as many yeah, holes in it as you want. Sue, I can't okay. hear you. You're you're uh, breaking up. I I couldn't hear better? you. Is this any better? Yes. Okay. Good. Um, okay. So I I have kind of a big fat question for you, um, which is we you take the AA history and apply it to OA history. What can we learn? What what can we learn? in a universal way uh, about, uh, oh, life and its big concerns from um, this AA history. And I'm going to make a big, fat statement here that um, I think that, and this is personal, that that we have here a universal message that requires terminal uniqueness, that, that all people, all human beings have an addiction to control and power. And I say this, I'm, I'm a recovered person in suburban Philadelphia. I'm also a physician, so I have my orientation. I, I think that Dr. Silkworth hit on pay dirt when he was talking about the allergy of the body and the obsession of the mind, and that nowadays we have a more advanced understanding of this, somewhat more, which is a miracle, which is that we're filled with neurotransmitters and all people are vulnerable to many of the same things, that we're, we're not unique in OA, but we need to think of ourselves as unique in order to get better. Um, so I, I wonder what you have to say about the, the notion that, that all human beings have an addiction to control and to power and, and other things too, but those are the biggies. And, and uh how does the how did the twelve steps, the twelve traditions, the twelve concepts help people with these issues, but especially the twelve steps? And that's my question to you. And I await your answer. Well, Sue, I have no uh, I, I have no position in outside issues. I, I can't comment on whether other people have uh, whether other people or not addicts have ha- all have the same problem. I mean, I live with uh, a woman who is not quite a saint, uh, but she is a person who doesn't seem to have any of the problems I have, any of the problems of control or, or anything, anything of that sort. So I have no idea whether it's, it's – my experience is that it's not universal simply because I live with a person who doesn't have it. There are – I'm sure – well, I know that there are people in this world who are addicted to things that don't have 12-step programs around them. Addiction to power is uh, – you know, I wish there were a – Power Anonymous or something like that. A lot of people seem to be addicted to power, which which fits right into the description of, of the alcoholic and in, in, uh, the selfishness and how it works. Uh, I mean, I, I think many of us have always felt if you could apply the 12 steps to, uh, to the world, it would be a better world. Uh, I must say, though, that uh, I have friends in, in OA whose politics is, and recovered people whose uh, spirituality is, is not in question and that is uh, that in certain ways is greater than mine who whose politics i believe would uh, uh create rack and ruin in the world if if they were put if they were put in, into practice so they probably believe the same thing about my politics so um i'm in no position to comment about how the 12 steps could benefit humanity i i can say that they benefit humanity in, in one way is that they make me a better person and, or the, uh, and, and, and making me a better person uh, in some way, shape, or form contributes, I hope, to a better world. Uh, but I, I'm afraid I, I can't answer your question 
in the way that I think you wanted me to answer. I don't, I don't mean in saying the words you wanted me to answer, but uh, giving the same universal answer. I, I don't have an answer to that question. Um, and I, I can only say that I, 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 my experience is that there are people about whom I can say that they don't need a 12-step program and uh, who do not have these issues. Now, they, they have reached their own spirituality in their own way. You know, I mean, in the work I do, I've met people who have been abject drunks and abject drug dealers, uh, drug dealers and drug takers, um, who have found a solution to their alcoholism or their drug uh, addiction, not through the 12 steps. They found them into their own spiritual path, to their own cultures, to their own spiritual path. So I, I guess I can't answer much more than that. I'm really sorry. Thank you, Suji. Who's next? Marcella. Marcella and then Carol G. Go ahead, Marcella. Um, thank you, um, Leah. Hi, Laurie. Nice hearing you. Um, my question is, as far as you know, have we ever, as OA as a whole, have we ever defined or described what's the meaning of compulsive overeating? That's my question. Thank you. That's a good question, and I'm, I'm trying to remember. I, 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 uh, I, 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 no, we've described we've described the symptoms uh, in our OA 12 and 12. Um, uh, gee, uh, I don't think we've ever defined it, but I'm something is niggling at my mind, and it, it, I may be able to come up with the answer as we as we as we talk. Um, but at the moment, I, I don't think we've, we've ever done that. We leave it to ourselves to, def, to define it. Um, I, I wish we would define it uh, only in the sense of defining addiction, uh, what our addiction is. But I, I'm just trying to think. I'm just going to our website to see if, uh, if our policies have ever literally described it. But, uh, but I'll try and answer that question as, as time goes on while I answer other questions. I hope that's okay. I'm not Thank aware you. of it. Thanks, Marcella. Carol G., your turn. Carol G., star one to unmute. Ah, yes. Thank you. Thank you, um, Laurie. Thank you greatly. Um, I was tuning in intently. It's Carol G. from England, uh, recovered. I do have a question. Hi. Um, I didn't hear you, hear you say it today or use the term spiritual malady to describe our twofold illness. And my question is, is it actually in the big book? And can you explain from your own experience the term that AA uses, spiritual malady, and how would you describe that to a new prospect? Thank you. Okay. Well, it's interesting. Malady is a word that is used in the big book. I, I'm looking for my big book index, and I might be able to tell you where. But it, it's, it's interesting. It's a word that is used. Um, Bill did not want to use the word disease. He, he, writes, he talks about that. He didn't want to use the word disease because he felt that that made it into a a medical uh, concept, and he didn't want doctors taking charge of um, of uh, of the of the um, of, of the program. Uh, so he used the word, generally speaking, he used the word illness. 
Uh, he uses the word malady, isn't it, in how it works, um, where he says, where it says, uh, no, 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 yes, that's right, he, uh, on page 64 of the big book, when the spiritual malady is overcome, it says, um, we have not been not only mentally and physically ill, we have been spiritually sick. When the spiritual malady is overcome, we straighten out mentally and physically. Malady there is a synonym for sickness. And I don't think it's any, any different from there. Um, and sickness is, is the illness. And he used the word illness uh, to be distinct from disease. He felt that the word disease implied a, a diagnosable problem, a, a problem that medicine could diagnose. And he felt that illness uh, was uh, be- better described uh, uh, the state of being uh, uh, rather than the, uh, a, a definable problem. And I, I think malady here is simply uh, used as a um, as a synonym for for um, for uh, for illness. Um, so that's uh, that's my answer. I think I've answered that question. Uh, by the way, I am looking at uh, our World Service policy, um, and I do not see anywhere in our policy the, that the word compulsive eater. Is, is defined. So, okay. Thank you. I, I, I hope I've answered that. Thank you, Carol. Who's next? Star one to unmute to identify yourself. This is Judith. Judith. Anyone else? Linda R. And Linda R. Go ahead, Judith. Good morning. Thanks so much, Lori. Um, I'm wondering, Judith Lauren Vermont, do you see this as a twofold illness or a threefold? Yeah, I, I think I, I, it was cut off, but I think is it a twofold illness or threefold illness? Well, uh, uh, it's a twofold problem uh, that has a, uh, a third solution. Um, only in 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 that one section I just read. Do they talk about uh, being not only physically and mentally ill, but also spiritually sick? It is defined, certainly in a doctor's opinion and the, the introductory chapters to the big book, as a twofold problem, the allergy to the body and the obsession of the mind, um, with a spiritual solution. Clearly, though, I mean, we are spiritually sick in the sense that we do not have a higher power to restore us to sanity. So it's an absence. The the allergy of the body, the obsession of the mind, are the presence of something. The spirituality is an absence. So I, I don't think it's a significant, uh, I mean, it certainly is a, a, it's a threefold problem uh, because we have two, two negative things that exist in us and we lack one positive thing that doesn't exist in us. Um, and, and that's sort of the summary of steps one and two. Step one is the despair, the, two, the two, uh, twofold problem, uh, the twofold uh, abnormalities, and step two is the solution, the the absence. So it is a, it, it is in effect a threefold problem. Uh, it is a twofold uh, uh, presence of problem and a and a thirdfold absence of solution. <laughs> Good question. May have to amend some of the things I've been saying, but one thing that's important is is uh, that the big book describes it as mental and not emotional, and and we we have in our literature emotional uh, sickness or emotional disease, and and 
I don't think emotional covers as well as mental some of the reasons we have for going back to the things that used to beckon to us. Because I think the concept of, oh, it's organic, so I can have this cinnamon bun, is, is just pure insanity and has nothing to do with uh, emotional issues. It's just crazy. Or I've been exercising for two minutes and so I can eat the cupcake. You know, it just doesn't make sense to me to call that an emotional re- uh, uh, reason. So that's my answer. Thanks. Thank you, Judith. Linda R., your turn. Good morning, Maria. Thanks so much for your service today. I've got a lot of items to share today. Anyway, I just wanted to ask you, you know, you were talking about, like, facilitating meetings, you know, um, not using Robert's rules and having people, you know, express their feelings and give them more of a forum. I think that's how I perceived it. But my question is, um, I have found in my experience in the program that Many people like to talk a lot, and I've gone to many meetings where there are no structured time, you know, to stop the, you know, the speaker. And it's been very inequitable, and sometimes tolerance is very difficult. So people get up and they talk a lot, and they're sharing, you know, things that are really upsetting them or gut-level things or just sharing their experiences. So my question to you is, as a leader or a facilitator of any type of meeting, How do you set boundaries when people talk too much? Um, I just want to say, I do understand, you know, sometimes people do have a need to get things out, and when they're timed, it's not fair. But I'm just asking you, how would you handle that, like, when people do speak too long, and as the leader, you you know, you have rules and regulations. So I just want to get your share on that. Thank you. It's a great question, and, and uh, you know, I'll preface it by saying that my first sponsor was, in, as I said, in AA as well as OA, once said to me, do you know what would happen in an AA meeting if someone got up and said, I've been drunk for the last six weeks, but let me tell you everything I know about uh, step three. Uh, he said that person wouldn't get too far in speaking at an AA meeting. I'm, I'm not a member of AA, so I've never attended a meeting at which that happened. But my, my understanding from people I've spoken to in AA uh, is that, depending on the relative rudeness of that meeting, that person might be told to shut up or something even stronger than that, um, uh, or, or might be visited afterwards and told, why don't you take the cotton out of your ears and put it in your mouth? You know, you have no business talking about anything you haven't experienced, and you clearly haven't experienced anything because you're still drunk. Um, so, I, you know, there's a toughness there uh, that, that, that I understand is in a lot of AA meetings, that I agree with you is not often found in OA meetings. There are reasons for that, and there, there are historically significant reasons. We in, in OA, most of us, are really wounded people. Um, and, and, and we're wounded for all kinds of reasons. Uh, those, of, those of us who are, are women, I, I'm not, but my experience is that many of, of the women in OA have been really, really pushed around, sometimes physically beaten, uh, sexually abused, um, and sometimes emotionally uh, abused, either uh, uh, as a result of, of becoming a compulsive eater, uh, of eating compulsively, or um, became a compulsive eater in order to stay away from people who would abuse them. Um, at any rate, uh, and, and, and women in our society suffer a tremendous uh, humiliation um, 
from 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 being uh, overweight mostly, but also underweight in, in some cases, um, in ways that men, you know, that, that that many men don't. I mean, you know, men can walk around with a a paunch and a beer belly uh, and still somehow maintain their self-esteem, but but it's much harder for women in our society to do that. So they come into OA um, really wounded, needing love and understanding, finding it, and 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 and. And and God bless us for for giving that love and understanding. It, it, it there's a need for that. There's a need to to just to give these people us to give us all a sense of, of you're not alone anymore. So I I do understand that. Um and 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 there's a a tolerance there that is 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 important. So I I want to put that on the one side, and put on the other side the need though to keep our meetings focused on what our meetings are about. What is our primary purpose? It's to carry the message to those who still suffer, the message of the steps, of recovery through the steps, not the message of love and tolerance, unless that's part of the steps, not the message of hugging, uh, not the message of I'll listen to you no matter what comes out of your mouth, but the message of what the steps are about. How do you combine those two? A, good mentor, a, a major mentor of mine in, 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 in OA uh, said to me, and, and he knows he didn't meet, make it up, but he doesn't remember where he heard it. And if anyone knows where, please let me know. Um, something like, words like this. He says, honesty without compassion is cruel. And sometimes, you know, that, that's the shut up, take the cotton out of your ears and put it in your mouth. Uh, can be can be honest, but is not compassionate. It can be very cruel. But he says, compassion without honesty, can kill. And, and uh, he was there uh, in our discussions referring to OA meetings where we, where we don't, where we aren't tough enough at times, where we aren't honest, lovingly honest. Uh, I, I was relapsing this program, as I said, for six or seven years. Uh, people would ask me how I w- was. I'd say, fine. They'd say, great to hear you. You talk, you talk a lot. We love to hear you talk. You're very eloquent. And I was relapsing. I was gaining weight, and I was uh, turning, I'm sure, turning all kinds of newcomers off because I was talking with great authority about things that I obviously wasn't practicing. And then the shyest woman in the room came up to me at one point. She told me later she had prayed for three weeks before she came up to me. And she said, how are you, Laurie? And I said, fine. And she said, I mean, really? And that gentle but direct confrontation of me caused me to admit complete defeat. I finally said, I'm in terrible, terrible shape. Thank you for loving me enough to be honest with me. So there, there's, a, there's an element that we miss. And, and, and I always say to people, you know, if you have problems with the meeting, if you have problems with individuals who talk too much or who are, you think are disrupting the meeting, um, do a step 10 on them. You know, do an inventory on your resentment in relation to them, your fears. Make sure that before you speak to them, you are clear in your mind that you're, 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 none of your own resentments, none of your own wish to be in charge is there, that it's all with love and understanding for that person and for the meeting and for the method. That's, that's one thing. Secondly, there are different techniques that meetings can have for, uh, for bringing some structure to them. One of them, and I, I'm not in love with them, is a timer. I mean, but that certainly does work in large meetings. Uh, another of them is to adopt, uh, uh, if, if it's a large meeting especially, to adopt a, a method um, uh, that Roseanne actually, our, our co-founder, uh, our founder, 
uh, like the, the early meetings were lectern meetings or where, where people would sit in, in theater-style rows, and if you wanted to talk, you had to get up and talk. And that often, uh, and, and, and that often acts as its own damper. People won't, you know, if you go around in a circle, people will share because they'll feel that they have to share. If you force people to, just by the structure of the meeting, to, to, to take a positive action, maybe you'll, you'll only find people have something to share on a topic. Third is to have topics that are related to the steps and not related to anything else. Uh, it seems to me that that's a significant thing. If meetings are there to carry the message of the recovery through the 12 steps, they should be about the steps or in some way mention the steps or discuss the steps or uh, talk about recovery. They should be about recovery. Whether or not people at the meeting are recovered, they should be about the recovery and not about the problems. Um, and, for, and, and then there's also, if you look on the OA website, you'll see a suggested meeting format. You'll see in that meeting format a paragraph that was put in, uh, a suggested for, uh, format, where it says something like, I, as chair of this meeting, have been delegated by this meeting to have the discretion to say to people whether I think that they're talking too long or are talking off topic. And I ask you to accept the conscience of the meeting if I do that. Now, that, that gives some power to people, to, to chairs, to, to bring some order. Um, but that's about my, I, you know, the, last but not least, I mean, I would find a way to talk to that person. If, if, I would, if I really felt that this person was being disruptive, I would try to find a way through prayer and meditation, through working my, my uh, step four, five, six, seven, eight, and nine of them, my nine would be how, what to say to them. How can I make amends to them for not having spoke to them in the right way, for not having found the right words? Uh, am I being dishonest by not saying what I should be saying? Or would I harm them further? Or am I harming the meeting by not saying anything? And find a way of, of talking to that person. I think it's both an individual and a group issue. I, I, I would have a group business meeting to discuss the uh, problem in general, not to say we've got to talk about X, but not to say I've noticed that our times are sometimes uh, we run out of time because some people talk longer than others at various meetings. I've, I've done that myself, and I wanted to discuss a way of, of, uh, of, uh, of, of stopping, uh, of, of regulating the meeting in a better way. How can we do this? That's, those are my answers. Thank you very much to those who posed questions this morning. And, of course, thank you, Lori, for your very interesting and helpful presentation this morning. And I'm going to close the meeting in the interest of time now in the way that we always close our meeting from page 164. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then.